me. So, all right, Judges chapter 11. We're going to start in verse 12 here in just a second. Uh, it was maybe a year or so ago that the Busby family, we were all sleeping peacefully in our beds when our smoke alarms decided enough of that. And they went bonkers. Our system, I think like most, is all connected. So if one alarm goes off, they all go off. And so it was about 2 in the morning and our house erupted in these fire alarms. And we were all out of bed in a white hot panic. And so we're looking around for smoke, for fire. There's nothing. There's, our house is just fine. It's just our smoke alarms decided, I'm tired of being alone tonight. I'd like some company. So, since we were sure everything was safe, we got everyone settled down, laid back down, waited on our heart rates to go down a bit, and then we fell back asleep. And not long after we fell back asleep, again, the fire alarms went off to announce their loneliness and their desire for friendship. Uh, But they got no friends from us that night. There was no fire. It was just something wonky in our system. And the next week, we replaced every single one of our smoke alarms. We were tired of that. But it was interesting, everyone's reactions when the alarms went off in the middle of the night. Some among us were determined to find the cause of the smoke alarm. Uh, Others among us were just stricken by panic. They would never sleep again, ever, because of this fear. Others among us were annoyed because they got out of bed for nothing. You mean there's not even a fire? Oh, my word. The reactions really varied from person to person. Uh, And, you know, you can practice your fire alarms all you want, all your fire drills all you want, but it's hard work to stay calm when it seems like the crisis is real, when you're not expecting it and all of a sudden you're woken from your sleep and you've got to find someplace to go, something to do. It's hard to make decisions in that type of scenario. But what about when the crisis isn't fake? What about when the crisis is real, not imaginary? How do God's people respond in that moment? It's hard for us to plan ahead, and it's hard for us to know. So oftentimes, whenever the phone call comes or the hard day lands at our address, we might respond with panic. Although we belong to the Lord, we might respond with doubt and fear. Although we know the promises of Scripture we might become people with a fractured faith or a panic that drives our everyday lives. It's not awful for that to happen. I think it's natural. But there's another way for God's people to respond when the day of crisis comes. And our time in Judges chapter 11 this morning is going to prepare us, kind of like a fire drill. It's going to give us some direction for how you and I are to respond whenever that hard day comes to our lives. So we pick up the story of Jephthah today in Judges chapter 11. Last week we met Jephthah briefly. Here's a quick recap of his story. Jephthah is an Israelite. He's from Gilead. And if you remember, he, ha- he shares a dad with a whole bunch of brothers, but he has a different mom. And so his half-siblings force him out, they send him away, and he essentially lives in exile for a while. And in that exile, he surrounds himself with what the Bible calls a group of adventurers. That might be a nice way of saying thugs in who knows what all. So there he is living in a far-off land, and an enemy nation, the Ammonites, come to Israel, and they invade. 
And now Israel is without a military leader. They need someone who will lead their military against the Ammonites. And so they remember Jephthah and they go and find him. And they beg him, beg Jephthah, the outcast, beg him to be their military leader. They promise him, if you'll lead us and if you will defeat the, the, the enemy, the Ammonites, then we're going to make you the big chief over all of Israel. So Jephthah acquiesced, he agreed, and that brings us to our passage today. Jephthah faces the challenge head on. The enemy is not at the border, the enemy is inside the nation. The enemy has already attacked and is ready to attack again. It's crisis moment. And in Jephthah's story, we're going to find two anchors for the follower of God in the crisis moment. So my goal today is this. When you leave here this morning, if we've studied this passage right, I hope you will be equipped to face the day of crisis. Just with two simple anchors, two simple actions, two simple things to remember. When a hard day comes, the call you didn't expect, the situation, life is turned upside down. Here's where we want to root ourselves. So I want you to follow along with me as I read Judges chapter 11. I'll start in verse 12. And we're going to read to the end. Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against us that you have attacked our country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok all the way to the Jordan Now give it back peaceably. Jephthah sent back messengers to the Ammonite king, saying, This is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites, but when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the desert to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the desert, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his men and encamped at Jahaz and fought with Israel. Then the Lord, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and all his men into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now, since the Lord, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God Chemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. Are you better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight against them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Eror, the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. 
Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me, when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and the Lord gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Mineth as far as Abel Karamim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mizpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of tambourines? She was an only child. Except for her, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh, my daughter, you have made me miserable and wretched because I've made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to the Lord. Do to me just as you promised, now that the Lord has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends because I will never marry. You may go, he said. And he let her go for two months. She and the girls went into the hills and wept because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. And she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite custom that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. It's an awful story. Absolutely awful. This might be one of the reasons people don't preach judges. We want to stick with things that feel good, things that are easy. But here's what you and I, as people who are under this word, have to remember. Even the story of Jephthah is God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word to us. So there's value for our faith in studying even a passage that makes us cringe like this. And indeed, Jephthah has a lot to teach us today about how you and I react when we face crisis. He teaches us one lesson in the positive, something he gets right. He teaches us another lesson in the negative, something he gets wrong. But from these things, you and I can walk out of here this morning anchored with an action plan ready whenever the hard day comes to our house. So, what are we going to do when crisis comes? God's people are going to respond in two ways. The first way you and I respond to crisis is this. Remember God's work. Remember God's work. Verses 12 through 28. So again, the scene is this. The bad guys are the Ammonites with an N. Ammonites. They have invaded Israel. They have attacked But before Jephthah will deploy the military, he's going to try a little bit of diplomacy first. So he sends messengers to the Ammonite king and says, hey, what's up with all this? And the Ammonite king 
sends a response back to Jephthah. And the Ammonite king justifies his attack on Israel in this way. He says, look, you have taken my land. When Israel came out of Egypt, they took Ammonite territory. So I want it back. I love the last line of the king's speech to Jephthah. He says, now give the land back peacefully. It's always curious when the guy with the bloody sword speaks about peace. And here's what's wonky about the king's timeline. He says when Israel came out of Egypt, they took our land. He says that like it happened last week. It happened 300 years previous to this whole interaction. So he's got a weird timeline going on. So Jephthah receives the Ammonite king's response. Jephthah, in turn, replies once more. He writes this long letter that we read back to the Ammonite king. And he argues his position using three different positions, three different arguments. First, there's a historical argument. In verses 15 through 22, Jephthah argues this. He says, look, the land that the king of Ammon is upset about, well, that land was won by Israel in warfare. We won this land fair and square. And we we didn't defeat Ammonites to take it. We defeated Amorites. This land never belonged to you in the first place. You're spouting fake news, king of Ammon. This is not your land, never was your land. It is ours because we took down Sihon, king of the Amorites. Second, he uses a theological argument in verses 23 and 24. He says, look, this land is not Israel's just by conquest, not just because we had the stronger army. It's ours by divine gift. God empowered us to defeat Sihon, king of the Amorites, And God gave us that land. And then he flips the script a little bit on the king of the Ammonites. He says, look, you worship a god named Chemosh. If you had a piece of property that you felt like Chemosh had given you, you would claim that, right? Well, it's the same for us. Yahweh, our God, gave us this land. It's ours by divine right. You have no claim on it whatsoever. His third argument is one from legal precedent. Verses 25 through 27. He points out, we've been here for 300 years, king. 300 years. So why now are you in such a huff about all of this? Why now do you decide you want to come in and stake claim to a property that was never yours? Remember Balak, king of Moab? That guy was cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs, and he never said anything to us about it. So why would you? This is ridiculous. It's a thorough argument. But ultimately, it's unsuccessful. Right? The king of Ammon pays no attention to the message, and so Israel goes to DEFCON 1. In this scene, Jephthah and Israel are face-to-face with an unhinged threat. So what does Jephthah do in his letter? I want, we need to scale back and just look at the big picture of this dialogue between Jephthah and the king What is it that Jephthah's doing? What does he call on in order to establish his place as the rightful possessor of this land? Jephthah remembers what the Lord has done for Israel. He doesn't respond with the military list. We have this many swords, this many soldiers, this many spears, this many chariots, this many horses, this many Sherman tanks, none of that. His argument ultimately is God gave us this land. 
God has done this mighty thing for us. He delivered us from Sihon, king of the Amorites. This is ours. And that's what leads to Jephthah's conclusion in verse 27. He says, let the Lord, the judge, decide the dispute this day. So he remembers what the Lord has done for Israel. The Ammonites are camped in Israelite territory, but the Lord gave them that land. Sure, the Ammonites are threatening a scorched earth policy, but Yahweh gave Israel victory over the Amorites back in the day. Now look, none of you are putting Israel's victory over the Amorites as one of your top ten favorite Bible stories of all time. Still, it is yet another example of God's strong, powerful deliverance of His people. It's a memory that God's people remembered on that day. And it's the memory that Jephthah calls on to fortify himself and argue their place in this land. When Israel is threatened with destruction, they remember God's work. And why? Remembering God's mighty acts on behalf of His people is an action that has always fortified God's people in times of turmoil. When the hard day came, God's people were not consumed with the why question. Why, God, are the Ammonites here? Why, God, has this happened to us? Why is this going? That's not what they're consumed with. When it's time to act, they don't focus on the why question. They focus on the who question. Who holds us? Who protects us? Who is our God? When the crisis is coming, they keep God's mighty works in focus. And so who is that God? Who is the one that you and I are going to look to when the hard day comes our way? This is who He is. He's the God who brought Israel out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. And He's the God who parted the Jordan River so Israel could enter the Promised Land. He's the God who cared for them in every battle, in every part of the conquest of the Promised Land. He's the God who shut the mouths of lions. He's the God who rescued three faithful boys from a fiery furnace. He's the God who protected his people from genocide through a hero girl named Esther. He's the God who spoke his word through the prophets time and time again. He's the God who promised about a Messiah who was coming again to set all things right. He is the God who came in flesh and we knew him as Jesus. And he really walked on this planet, really lived in this place, really breathed this oxygen. And he healed the sick, and he raised the dead, and he walked on water, and he calmed storms with a word, and he cast out demons, and he put down the self-righteous, and he exalted the humble. And this God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, then laid down his life, brutalized by his own creation, nailed to hunks of wood, And died in our place for our sin. And if he's still dead, that death is like every other death. But three days later, every eyewitness testifies he walked out of that tomb. And he lives forevermore. And then that God didn't stop there. That God then came to his people in the city of Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. God the Holy Spirit dwells in his children. And on that day, the gospel was proclaimed, and it set a precedent that the church has always followed. And then when persecution fell on the early church and God's people were scattered, they took the gospel with them. 
And who is our God? He's the God that empowered the witness of his suffering servants so that the church would spread and grow all around the Mediterranean. And ultimately, so that that gospel would bring together Jew and Gentile, people from every walk of life, every background, every socioeconomic class, every ethnicity. And who is that God? But the God who promised this, I am coming again. Setting everything right once and for all. So you, Christian, you have an Old Testament with all these stories of God's mighty works. And you've got a New Testament with all of these stories of God's mighty works. You need one more type of testament. You need your own testament. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Have you turned from your sin and turned to Jesus Christ, surrendered everything for the one who made you and gave everything for you himself? The God who left the glory of all the universe to come to the horrors of the cross to suffer in your place, to pay the price that you cannot pay on your own, to give you righteousness and holiness and forgiveness and eternal life. The question is not, are you moral? Are you good? Have you done the right thing? The question is, have you turned to Jesus? You need that story. These stories do nothing for you if this is not your story through faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ as your Savior? I didn't ask, are you a good Baptist? I didn't ask, did you grow up Catholic? I didn't ask, are you moral? I said, do you know Christ as your Savior? When the crisis comes and Jesus is your Savior, You've got a story to fortify you. When your knees shake and your gut is in knots, you have a risen, living Savior, a God dwelling in you who has never let his people down, not once. God's people respond to crisis different. We remember the works of our mighty God. Jephthah teaches us this well. But now we've got to shift our sights to something Jephthah teaches us from his mistake. So God's people do these two things in crisis. When the hard day comes, we remember God's work. Second, we rely on God's Word. We rely on God's Word. Verses 29 through 40 lay this out for us. So I want you to glance at your Bibles. Look at verse 29 with me. and We, we read the dialogue between Jephthah and the king of Ammon. And then verse 29 tells us, Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mizpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. So if we're reading this for the first time, we get to verse 29 and we say, Yes! This is great! The Spirit of the Lord has come upon Jephthah. He is going to kick tail, stack them ten high. He's going to deliver Israel. This is going to be phenomenal. It's wonderful. Then we get to verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. If you give the Ammonites into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be the Lord's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. So then as the reader, we've just gone from, that's awesome, to what in the world has just happened? The Spirit of the Lord is on Jephthah, and then he turns and makes this crazy vow? And then he goes and, the, and routes the enemy. Very little attention is given to that battle, by the way. This is what a, a tiny enemy in the face of a mighty God looks like. And then they routed the Ammonites. That's about it. 
But all the attention goes to this tragedy with Jephthah's daughter. He comes home from battle. His daughter comes out to greet him. And the tragedy begins to unfold. Jephthah explains his vow to his daughter. She asks for two months to go grieve with her friends and to mourn with them. He allows that. And when she comes back, the text tells us simply, he did to her as he had vowed. Now, what are we supposed to do with this other than read it fast and skip over it and hope no one ever asks us about it? What are we supposed to do with this passage? Well, Bible commentators are really split. There's a lack of agreement as to how we're to understand this. This is not a liberal theology versus conservative theology issue. It's just that this is a hard passage, and people who are a lot smarter than us, even they struggle to make sense of it. So people come at it from different perspectives. You've got some freedom in this. For example, some people approach this as actually a positive story, and they would say this, that Jephthah actually did not sacrifice his daughter. There's no human sacrifice in the story. Rather, the vow he made, the commitment he made, was that his daughter would simply serve the Lord. Or whoever came out of that door of his house would would be committed to the Lord to serve in a, a priestly way, so to speak. And so out comes his daughter. And the reason Jephthah's sad and the reason she's sad is because now in her service to the Lord, she's not going to be able to be married. This is his only daughter. This is the end of the family line. And the story never tells us that he actually kills her. It just says he fulfilled his vow to her. And so this line of reasoning would say he didn't kill his daughter, just committed her to the Lord's service. It was a grievance because this is the end of his family line. And that's it. After all, the argument would say, verse 29, the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. How could he make such a vile vow when the Spirit of the Lord is on him? It's it's a decent argument, but ultimately one that I disagree with. If you ask me, the plain reading of the text is the right reading of the text. Jephthah did indeed offer his daughter as a human sacrifice. He knew when he made that vow that he would not be sacrificing a goat or a bull that came out of his front door. He knew it would be a human of some sort. He just didn't anticipate it would be his daughter. And so Jephthah set himself up for this tragedy. Was God pleased by Jephthah's actions? Absolutely not. God has spoken repeatedly about how he feels about human sacrifice. It is an atrocity. He detests it. It is anti-God. God in no place in this passage says, well done, my good and faithful human sacrificer. He's not on board with this at all. Why didn't Jephthah step out of the vow? I think this is a cultural question that I don't have a good grasp on. For whatever reason, his word is his bond, and since he's made this vow to Yahweh, both he and his daughter feel it is unbreakable. It must be followed through on. It's important for you and I to note that Jephthah's vow is not what secured him the victory over the Ammonites. It was God's word to Israel that was the assurance of their victory. Jephthah didn't need to make a vow, didn't need to strike a deal with God. None of that was necessary. The victory was theirs because God was in it. In the face of hardship, Jephthah disbelieved the plain word of God, and he tried to improve upon it by making this stupid vow. And what we learn from Jephthah's mistake 
is that when the hard day comes upon us, God's Word and God's Word alone is sufficient to sustain us. So many people have tried to make deals with God in the past. Normally you do it when you're trying to pick your megabucks numbers, right? Oh Lord, if you will help me strike it rich in this lotto, I promise my first check will be to the church. And don't you, God who speaks everything into existence, don't you need that megabox for your kingdom work? I think you do. So I promise. You, God, you do this to me, I'll do this for you. And you've not won megabucks. There's a reason for that. You're a liar, for one. Or you're a cheapskate. Or God knows megabucks is your God, not the God of salvation. Praise God for His grace in keeping you humble and not winning at the lotto. So just save your money. We try to strike these deals with God all the time. In our thinking, we assume that if we offer God something, then He'll be more than likely to act in our favor. Oh God, I, I need you to bail me out. I need you to do this thing. And God, if you do this for me, here's what I'll do for you. And in our faulty reasoning, we assume God is motivated by what we commit to do. That's how human contracts work, after all. Here's my part of the deal. Here's your part of the deal. We both agree. And so now we're motivated to keep up with our end of the bargain. But that's not Christian logic. In fact, it's pagan logic. Pagan, pagan logic says we can manipulate God to get Him to act in our favor. So if I make the right sacrifice, if I have the right values, if I make the right commitment, if I pray the right formula then God will be obligated to do as I please. This type of religion that exists in so many churches sees God not as sovereign and holy, but as small and submissive. Great damage is done when we attempt to manipulate God. When we try to manipulate God, we are denying His grace. God acts in grace towards us always. He's never acted in any other way towards his people but by grace. He never acts based on what we merit, and that is to our benefit. Because <laughs> we don't want what we sinners deserve from a holy, holy, holy God. When we try to manipulate God, we are lowering his essence. We're making him small like us. When we try to manipulate God, we are discrediting his word. We put our power in the deal. Not in the plain promise of God to His people. When we attempt to manipulate God, we reject the benefits of the cross. How brazen of us to assume that our contracts with God will be more effective in delivering what we need than what God has already given us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Oh no, the cross is important, but I've made this deal. The cross is never important if you bank God's action towards you on some commitment you make to Him. Now, before we think that only a barbarian like Jephthah would do such a thing, let's remember that Jephthah did this, made this vow, after the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And it's clear from the book of Judges that when the Spirit of the Lord descends on a person, rests on a person, it does not turn that person into some sort of spiritual automaton, free from sin and worry and mistakes. For example... Gideon had the Spirit of the Lord descend upon him, and then we still went through that whole scenario with the fleece. That happened after the Spirit of the Lord descended on Gideon. 
So the Spirit of the Lord being on His servant does not take away human personality. It doesn't take away our fears. It doesn't remove our potential for sin. It does not remove our misunderstandings about God. So it's my observation that Christian people attempt to manipulate God all the time. When we perform religious deeds with the motivation of winning God's favor, well, we follow Jephthah's example. So we might say, God, I'm going to church so you'll give me what I want. God, I'm, I'm going to give my tithes so that you'll answer my prayers. God, I'm going to take communion so you'll give me victory. That thinking has Jephthah and not Jesus on it. God keeps His Word. What God says He will do, He does every time. And there's no need for you and I to try and bolster that, to make it better, to improve upon what the holy God of creation and salvation has done. What He has spoken, He will do. He will not be manipulated. He is to be trusted. And so, here are some of God's promises to you that you, just get, you get to take and bank your life on this. You don't have to do anything to make these things come to pass. You trust the Lord. You believe the Lord. He keeps His Word. Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 8. The Lord Himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Psalm 23, 4. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Here's a promise that God keeps to you. Isaiah 43, verse 2. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And when you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. The flames will not set you ablaze. Here's a promise from God that's just for you. James 1, 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given to you. Here's a promise for you struggling with temptation. James 4, 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Here's a promise from 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Hey, here's a promise. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There's the promise. Here's a promise from Revelation chapter 22, verse 12. Jesus says, look, I am coming soon. My reward is with me, and I will give to each person according to what they have done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God's people, in moments of crisis, rely on God's perfect, substantial, holy word. We do not forget the promises He's made. We do not attempt to manipulate Him to come our way. We simply take the word and put our lives under it. That's what God's people do in crisis. So Jephthah's been an excellent teacher to us today. He's taught us that when the hard day comes, when the crisis rises, we're going to remember the mighty works of our God, and then we're going to rely on the word of God. I'm going to remember who God is, what he's done. I'm going to rely on what he has promised to do. Jephthah, the tragic father, teaches us the goodness of God, the perfect father. So rather than this story being a burden to you today, I hope it's a relief to you. Yes, it's icky. 
But this story, tragic story, sets us free from all the ways we would try and manipulate God. All the panic and the fear that accompanies so much of our lives. Even though we don't know the next step, even though we don't know what's coming next, still we can anchor ourselves in a God who has always delivered His people and a God who always keeps His promises. And Look, God, if you need any greater proof that He keeps His Word and He does great things, well, He's acted on your behalf through His Son, Jesus Christ. And if he will give us his son, will he not also give us and care for us in every other smaller thing? Absolutely, he will. God the Father has ordered your steps. God the Son has died and rose again in your place. And God the Spirit dwells in you. God will keep his every word to you. His promises are true. One of my favorite dead writers, preachers, is a guy named A.W. Tozer. And he says this, Religion has accepted the monstrous heresy that noise and size and activity and bluster make a man dear to God. But take heart. To a people caught in the tempest of the last great conflict, God says, be still and know that I'm God. And he still says it as if he means to tell us that our strength and safety lie not in noise but in silence. So if crisis is at your doorstep today, do not add to it panic. Do not add to it fear. Do not add to it angst. But brothers and sisters, we have a mighty God who knows us by name, whose track record is perfect, whose promises are excellent and never failing, and that's where our hope and our strength is found. Although the storm may rage all around you, brothers and sisters, get quiet. Get in this book. And you're going to find what your soul needs from your speaking God. Let's pray. Father, um, share these words carefully because I don't know the crises like you know the crises. And you know what we've all carried with us into this room today. I know for a fact there's not one person that walked in these doors that doesn't come with some need of what you have for them. So my prayer is for my brothers and sisters, my friends who right now are going through extraordinarily difficult circumstances and who have wrestled with fear and anxiety and panic. We all do. But God, I pray that you would lift their eyes to you. Let them find in you strength and help and comfort and assurance and rest. Because that's what you have always given your people. So God, we're a room full of broken people who are in great need today. Holy Spirit, would you speed your comfort and your help to your hurting children? And God, when that day comes for us, the hard day comes again. Keep our eyes fixed on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who has always delivered, the one who has kept every promise. Thank you for your word to us. Thank you for helping us in all of our brokenness. And I'm grateful 
that there's a day when all this comes to an end in a glorious and final way. A day when you reign supreme, your kingdom comes, everything is just as you have intended it to be. Sin is put down, the evil one is done under, and you reign victorious. Father, we long for that day. Give us strength, give us your hope as we turn to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.